A few weeks ago, under the scorching heat of the Chapel Hill summer, thousands of new students began packing the streets, bringing about a fresh energy that comes about once a year in this town, and which has led me to reflect on my own first months on campus. Shortly after arriving here a couple years back, amid all the excitement and new experiences, I would often leave my room that was roughly the size of a generous walk-in closet and sit out on the much more spacious balcony walkway, which stretched across our 10-story building. Out there, regardless of the weather, those from my suite of rooms would sit around and talk with the girls from the suite one door over. Almost none of us had known each other prior to moving in. But for the few hours each week, we would sit, and the conversation would flow so naturally, almost as it does at a summer camp. And we were diverse, racially, geographically, and especially religiously, with Methodists and Evangelicals, Mormons, Catholics, Hindus, Baptists, a pair of atheists, and myself, an Episcopalian. And during our long and meandering talks, we would often turn to faith which is pretty common for most people in their first couple of months here. See, in the early months of a new semester, religion seems to be everywhere on campus. Every 30 yards on the quad, there's a fold-up tent with snacks and pamphlets about late-night evangelical Bible studies and religiously-themed capture-the-flag. Pit preachers stand on pedestals screaming obscure interpretations of Old Testament scripture, and new students joke about riding the circuit of campus ministries, that they might masquerade as practitioners from one group to the next, being well-fed from home-cooked dinners. In August, from the signs advertising church services and basement classrooms to the massive towers and steeples that dominate Franklin Street, Christianity feels so ever-conspicuous. So for many students of many faiths suddenly thrust into the big multicultural town of Chapel Hill, religion lent itself to frequent discussion. Campus photographers truly missed out on countless great diversity shots on that balcony. As a man who went to church regularly on the balcony, I found myself asked why I liked it pretty often. Now, this wasn't my first rodeo, and I'd found for years back home that with this type of thing, it was best to lay down a groundwork. Buildings are pretty, service structure is pretty nice, hymns are fun, you start small, you build your way up from there. That said, my front descriptions were pretty quickly outmatched by the much larger group of non-church-going students who attending UNC were really, really smart. And I soon started to hear a lot of the reasons why people had left and a lot, a lot of historic and academic commentary. With talk of sexuality, sexism and hypocrisy, sectarianism, colonialism, religious persecution, the Crusades, and the Reconquista. Bringing all this up not to debate, but to vent or explain in a way that made it really, really obvious that everyone was the top of their class back where they came from. (laughs) But for all the academic reasons, there were even more personal reasons. My parents dragged me there for years until I broke free the first chance I could. I never really agreed with what my pastor was saying. So much of the scripture never made sense to me, and no one explained it in the right way. The Bible says so many bad and backwards things, they're just too much to reconcile. I never felt safe there. Their God doesn't love me the way I am. What kind of a God would let my sister die so young? Not every passage from the Gospels can come right out and say the nice and easy messages we want to share, because the life of Jesus just wasn't that simple. 
This particular parable of the vineyard before us today, given just three days before his crucifixion, is like so many others, somewhat easy to begin to understand on a second read, but is fairly hard to interpret even after looking at it for hours. In this story of ownership, murder, selfishness, and wrath, metaphors thinly disguise almost everything, the landowner being God the Father, the land being God's own, the servants, the old and new prophets, coming in two waves, the vines, us, waiting for God to come, the Son, the Messiah, whose being thrown from the vineyard foretells Christ's being thrown out of Jerusalem to Calgary. The only truly mysterious characters in our story are the tenants, with a crazed plan to seize the plantation from the landowner, because in Judea, without a male heir, the land likely would have fallen to its occupants. While this text comes out and says the chief priests and the Pharisees realized he was talking about them, rarely in these parables written down with only one audience in mind, and the identity of the tenants is a centuries-old question with many, many answers, each one complicated. One interpretation, which has historically been very common, but is difficult to talk about on the dorm balcony, or even amongst our modern selves, is that the tenants are the Israelites as a whole, the Jewish people who had the Holy Land taken from them. This meaning has sometimes been used to explain the events of history, and sometimes to justify a worldview critical of Judaism in the context of the crucifixion. With the allusions to being dragged beyond the walls of Jerusalem, perhaps Matthew meant to say that the Israelites had broken their covenant with God and that they were being thrown out of the vineyard to be replaced with Gentiles who followed the new teachings of Jesus. Or this may not have been his intention, and perhaps Matthew wanted Jesus' words to mean he was advocating for an overthrow of the religious hierarchy, replacing the old guard's corruption and power-grabbing schemes. Either way... Neither of these are the type of simple and straightforward messages you would like to talk about with a group of students expressing their frustration with the church. Neither feel quite right coming from the God of love who told us just weeks ago to forgive without end. The uncertainties present highlight how hard a passage like this can be to work through and reminds us that there are only so many verses of scripture that can be explained in a minute or less. For the sake of variety, if that interpretation didn't quite suit your fancy, there have been a lot of scholars and a lot of monks in the last two millennia, so we've got more resources at our disposal. One interpretation that is a bit more palatable to our modern sensibilities is treating the parable as a story of remorse and God's patience. With this more joyful outlook, we view God as a benevolent landowner who carefully looked after each vine and who loved not only his land but the tenants who worked it day after day. And as the tenants got fed up with God, he showed them incredible patience, sending first a few men, and while they were mistreated and even killed, he continued to believe that they were good, and he continued to show them mercy in a way that none of us ever would. To over and over again believe that they'd turn away from their wicked ways up to the point of saying, well, they killed all those guys, but no, there's no way they'll do that to my son, defies all logic by our standards, but for God our loving and caring and patient God, who knows that they had it within themselves to be good, continues to forgive and forgive and forgive. That is the version we like to share, a version which is cut and dry, and a version which sounds really, really easy to preach on. But try as we might, it doesn't feel quite right either. 
After all, God does eventually stop forgiving. He does throw them out of the vineyard. He does take away their property and their work and give it to someone else. Jesus boldly explains that those who tried to steal from God, however patient he may be, would be crushed under the weight of the cornerstone and shattered into pieces. And as palatable as this forgiveness-happy interpretation of the parable is, by the time we reach the bone-crushing lines, we are going to start to think that maybe there are some issues we haven't quite addressed here. Our God is all-loving, and he is the God of forgiveness, but here we can't easily look past the verses that speak to themes other than those basic universal truths, simply because we'd rather the passage be simpler. So, perhaps let's look at one final interpretation, one which takes a step back from history and at our own leading desires of what we hope to find in the words on the page, and instead tries to figure out what God is trying to tell us now. Let's look at us, we here, in this church, as the tenants of the vineyard. Every basic characteristic that the tenants displayed in the fields, the selfishness, the desire for more goods, the unwillingness to give up any of what they had helped grow, these are traits present in us all. And while we often try to avoid them and tend to physically injure a lot fewer people in the process, of course, at some level, we all take far more from God and his world than we give. In every way, we all have tried and continue to try to take God's creation as our own. We ultimately all deserve to be thrown out of the vineyard because we will never live up to the standard that Jesus has set for us, but God knows that, and through his forgiveness and his mercy, we stay in his love because despite all of our shortcomings, despite our misdeeds and wicked intentions and tenant behaviors, we too are the very vines that God planted in the first place, the gods which he brought up from the ground and fed and lifted closer to the sun every day, which he walked among and nurtured and looked upon, calling each by name, the very ones for whom he sent his son to live and die as one of us, to sacrifice himself for our sins, for God loves us so dearly that he sacrificed all things for us, despite the nature of our flawed selves. But if we are the tenants then not only do we deserve to be thrown out of the vineyard, we were thrown out of the vineyard. We were crushed under the cornerstone, and even as we perhaps were the cornerstone all along, or maybe we build atop the cornerstone or something else, because my word, is it easy to get lost in interpreting this parable and all the parables and the whole life of Christ, and wouldn't it just be so much easier if every verse and story and book in the Bible were easier to repeat and share with nice, simple messages that fit on greeting cards and in obituaries and on wedding invitations or on balconies to people who would love to hear some good, simple words that would suddenly make everything clear it is never that easy, it is never that easy, and it was never supposed to be. Just as hard as it is to understand this passage and so many others, it is no lesser feat to try and follow Jesus in our contemporary lives. Sitting in the cool summer evening air on a dorm balcony, the young academics who were venting about what drove them away from the church or from the idea of God altogether, weren't doing so to debate or fight or prove me a Christian wrong. Sitting in a circle of new friends, they wanted to share where they'd been and how their confused and complicated relationship with faith got to where it was that night. In truth, 
Most of them believed in God, a God, somewhere in some way. But for most of them, at this point in their life, they didn't exactly know what to think. And I certainly wasn't going to tell them, because they weren't looking for me to explain it. In these conversations, and in many others, you hear people grapple with the churches they grew up in and what was said there, and how oftentimes it just didn't make sense. How the verses that came up in Sunday school or from a pulpit were just so different in message from the image of God they had loved as a child, or for some, that they had heard of others loving. And often, some of the verses simply seemed irreconcilable with the God they wanted to know. Faith is all around us here on this campus, in a jumbled and confused way, one full of unknowns and uncertainties and whose questions can't be resolved in a single page or with a single story. People all around us wrestling with faith and what it means to them, wrestling with God and wrestling with what in the world his words actually meant, wrestling with the Bible. We've based our faith on a hard book to understand, and parts of our journey with that faith is recognizing that we simply don't have all of the answers and we likely never will. The life of Christ was one full of complexity and contradiction, and in living in such a way, he is able to meet us and see us in our own jumbled up and confused world and to understand us even as we don't understand him. If there is one thing, One interpretation we can take from Jesus' lesson on the vineyard. One thing we can say to those sitting in the summer evening breeze. It's that they're not alone in their reflection because by God are we wrestling with faith too. Amen. The Chapel of the Cross is an Episcopal church in the heart of Chapel Hill and the university community. Find out more at thechapelofthecross.org. There you can find our latest news and events, connect with our pastoral care team, Faith in Action Ministries, and offer a prayer request. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at thechapelofthecross, and on Facebook and Twitter at C-O-T-C, Chapel Hill. May you be nourished by the word to serve in the world.